The following program has language that might be offensive, depending on your definition of might and offensive and your understanding of the language. It's Thursday, February 24th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. As Russia shells, bombs, and rolls its tanks through the Ukrainian countryside, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky bravely called upon his countrymen to resist. His words, Ukraine is defending itself and will not give up its freedom no matter what Moscow thinks. As Zelensky spoke of repelling attacks in Donbas and other regions, reports were that for every Russian repelled, there were dozens more Ukrainians defeated. But imagine this. Imagine John Stewart talking to our country as our cities were shelled or invaded. Vladimir Zelensky, a few years ago, was a comic, a satirist, whose keen sense of the ridiculousness of his country's precarity gave him appeal to the masses. And also, like John Stewart, he's Jewish, a further ridiculousness given that Putin premised his invasion on, among other reasons, the denazification of Ukraine. In an address that actually got through to Russia, Zelensky added, quote, the Ukraine on your news and the Ukraine in real life are two completely different countries. And the main difference between them is ours is real. You are told we are Nazis. But could a people who lost more than 8 million lives in the battle against Nazism support Nazism? Zelensky could have added some personal details, as he did during a visit to Israel two years ago. He told a story of a Ukrainian family, four brothers, during World War II. Here's the translation. Three of them, and also their parents and their families, became the victims of the Holocaust. They were shot by the Nazis occupants that burst into Ukraine. Zelensky went on to say that one brother was not with the family at the time. He was fighting the Nazis on the front. He came back, had a child, that child had a child, and he, Zelensky, is that last child. In this first war of Vlad's, Vladimir Putin exploited the idea of denazification, whereas Vladimir Zelensky is a Jew, a descendant of those who narrowly escaped the Nazis. Zelensky's words were, in fact, inspiring. Today, U.S. President Joe Biden did his job to emphasize America's resolve. But this aggression cannot go unanswered. If it did, the consequences for America would be much worse. America stands up to bullies. We stand up for freedom. This is who we are. But given domestic considerations, Biden had to spend a lot of time addressing economic concerns of the average person. As we respond, my administration is using the tools, every tool at disposal, to protect American families and businesses from rising prices at the gas pump. Biden also had to assure and reassure his own countrymen that this would not literally be our fight. Let me say it again. Our forces are not and will not be engaged in the conflict with Russia in Ukraine. Our forces are not going to Europe to fight in Ukraine. So Biden did have to say those things, but they mixed the message of standing up to bullies. We will fight them in the bond markets. We will fight them through bank account freezes. It's not exactly Churchill, and that's why it's hard for Biden's words to act as a rallying cry. 
What's clear in this conflict is that this isn't a war of words or a war of ideas. This is a war of artillery shells, and Putin has the more plentiful, more powerful, and better positioned ones. So a thought struck me in the days leading up to the war. There was so much fodder to be had in Putin's ridiculous arguments or the spectacle of his comically long table he used to meet Macron or his ham-handedly orchestrated cabinet meetings among sycophants. So much fodder, and Putin must know it. But now that the fodder is of the cannon variety, Putin is not being mocked. And I think that explains a lot of Putin's actions. He willingly engages in cyber warfare, and he's had some success on that front. But no matter how much Fancy Bear's memes drive wedges in American society, the successes are pretty modest. So with information warfare, maybe Putin senses he has had some small wins. Putin has put his boot on the neck of the Russian free press, but he hasn't choked it out entirely. This means he could make his arguments to a domestic audience without much opposition, but he still knows he's not triumphing over truth or destroying his debate partners. But with war, with actual explosions and bloodshed, his victories are beyond dispute. He doesn't have to jail a female punk rock collective or poison a dissident to make his point. Rockets make it for him pretty damn effectively. So shifting from a war of words to a war of arms greatly appeals to Putin. He can and will win overwhelming victory with smirch missiles in a way he never could through subtle means. I think he was eager to disengage from the argument and enjoin the battle. On the show today, I spiel about war. This war, all war, but another specific war you might want to pay attention to. But first, Chris Miller is a professor at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. He's an expert on Moscow and Putin's motivations, and he has some estimates about how this war might go. They're not good. Chris Miller, up next. We are at war. It is the first time between two European states with defined boundaries since World War II. I don't know if that distinction is important. What is important is that we're talking, well, let's find out, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of refugees and casualties. It all depends on the mind of Vladimir Putin. Who knows that mind better than Chris Miller? He's an assistant professor of international history at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts. And I could list his credentials forever, but a visiting researcher at the Carnegie Moscow Center. And he was uh, the associate director of the Brady Johnson Program in Grand Strategy at Yale. Let's talk about that a little. Chris, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. How big a war are we looking at? Uh, give me an estimate of casualties and refugees. Well, it's clear that we're looking at a big war. I think the question right now is, are we looking at a long war or not? Um, Russia has attacked Ukraine from almost every direction, from the north, from the northeast, from the east, from the south, from the air. Um, it's been attacking in cyberspace for some time now, and it's probably the case, although we don't have good evidence yet, that those attacks increased uh, overnight. 
with the, with the outbreak of the fighting. So we've got a big war on our hands with tens of thousands of troops, with cruise missiles and artillery flying in uh, and hitting Ukrainian positions. What's not clear yet is how long it will last. Right. And long seems worse for obvious reasons, but quick isn't great because quick indicates that the Russians want to, and this is how they conduct their wars, they want to go massive in a hurry to both gain ground, send a message, and decimate their enemy. That's right. And it seems like the conventional fighting is is going to be quick. Russia's just got a really substantial military advantage over the Ukrainians. The, the open question is, could Russia actually pacify the country after it defeats the Ukrainian military? Uh, most Ukrainians don't want the Russians there. And so it's not at all inconceivable that we could have guerrilla style resistance to a potential Russian occupation or a puppet government if Russia tries to set one up. Yeah, and it's interesting we're talking about that step already. So are you assuming that after Putin goes through these eastern regions in the Donbass, which he defines as now part of Russia, you're you're assuming it sounds like he will march on to his forces will march on to Kiev or Kiev, as he would say? We've already seen some initial reports this morning of, of Russian forces on the outskirts of Kiev. Um, so I think it's only a, a matter of time until they number in the thousands. Uh, and if, if Russia decides to enter Kiev, which is a city of several million people, um, that's going to be a major operation and, and put a lot of Russian soldiers at risk, as well as a ton of civilians um, at risk. But it seems like that's where Russia's headed. It wants to decapitate the Ukrainian government um, to put its own guy in charge. We don't know who that might uh, be and to use that as a way to control Ukraine. Um, and that's a, a tough strategy to make it work. What options do the Ukrainians have of fighting back? Well, they're fighting back on the battlefield right now. It's it's still early days. Um, they've slowed Russian advances in a number of uh, different regions. But I think ultimately the Ukrainians' best strategy is is going to be to resist uh, the Russians in a guerrilla style if, if they choose to do that. Um, you, Russia's got advantage in terms of armor, in terms of aviation, in terms of artillery, any sort of conventional military metric, the Russians have an advantage. But if the fighting moves to the cities and is an unconventional war, then all of Russia's technological and technical advantages are, um, are much less impactful in that type of fighting. Do the Ukrainians have any answer to the Russian air dominance? In terms of quantity of planes, uh, Russia's far ahead in terms of um, capabilities, training, Russia's got a, a real um, substantial advantage there. So it's, it's hard to see Ukraine uh, regaining any sort of uh, control of the air. No matter how much Vladimir Putin defines this as reclaiming what is rightfully Russian territory, or no matter how much he advances the myth that there really is no such a thing as Ukraine, it's just a section of Russia, it is a war of aggression. And we're talking about uh, military units who don't live in a place invading the place and people who do live in a place defending it. So that at least is an advantage to the Ukrainians. How much of an advantage? Well, I think that the big advantage is that the Ukrainians know what they're fighting for and the Russians don't. Um, for Russian forces, they're going to follow their orders, um, at least for the initial phase of the war. But I, I think this is going to be a hard conflict to explain to Russians uh, if it lasts more than a couple of weeks. Uh, Ukrainians know, as Zelensky said in his speech last night, they're fighting for their territory, they're fighting for their homeland, they're fighting for their future. What exactly is Russia fighting for? Well, Putin said it's fighting to denazify Ukraine. Oh, in what reality, in what alternate universe is that a coherent thing to be fighting for?
Right. It is true that Stalingrad and other places in Russia were under siege by the Nazis and the Russians held up when there really was a siege, not just when their 69-year-old president told the people that this is the equivalent of us fighting the Nazis. You know, the Russians don't have free flows of information and Putin does seem to be actually popular, not just people afraid to tell pollsters, but you are indicating that this line of logic won't go far when the Russian public sees body bags coming home? I think that's right. I've been struck just in the first couple of hours of fighting the difference between now and 2014, the last time you had uh, substantial Russian military action in Ukraine. Then there was almost universal support for the annexation of Crimea, for Russia's uh, um, secretive military operations in Ukraine, undercover operations. Today, there's been really open dissent on Russian social media, even from people who I would have normally described as being in the government camp, uh, which is, is I think, striking and shows how even the Russian elite and people close to the government are a bit more nervous about this than they've been about Russia's previous wars. Well, he's not going to let any of that dissent take place on television. And from what I understand, non-social media, you know, print, if we could call it that, is not very robust under Putin. So how big is social media? How big a role can that play in Russia? It plays some role. Putin's been trying to bring social media to heel over the past couple of years. Uh, he's gotten control of the biggest Russian search engine, so he can now uh, control how search results are displayed. For example, he uh, his allies own the biggest Russian um, social media company called Kontaktier, uh, and he's been censoring and pressuring uh, YouTube, uh, Facebook, uh, Western tech companies as well to um, to support his censorship efforts. But I think there's no way that the Russian government can completely monopolize news flow, especially if we do end up seeing a substantial number of Russian casualties. If it's in the hundreds or even the low thousands, it's probably not a problem. If it gets above that, it might be a different story. Is that a lot more important than the effect of sanctions and asking Russians to tighten their belts, which is uh, if Russians, from what I understand, if Russians think it's a good cause, they have no problem doing so. You know, it's hard to be confident. I, I do think that the Russian casualty count is probably more important uh, than sanctions. Uh, Russia is used to sanctions. Now, we're going to do tougher sanctions this time than in the past. Uh, but Putin's been very good at uh, blaming the economic downside of sanctions on the West and its desire to keep Russia down. That's his story. And that's proven effective. It's harder to justify body bags for a cause that people don't really understand. Yeah. And when uh, there was, you you would know this better than I, but I'm recalling in, I forget how many years ago, but there was a sunken submarine and that caused, that was one of the biggest and most harrowing news stories in Russia, all these uh, sailors who, you know, met their briny deaths. But it does show that unlike some other autocracies, uh, soldiers dying, sailors dying, airmen dying, still gets through to the Russian public and has a big effect. That's right. And we've seen the Russian government try really hard in its war in Syria and in 2014 in Ukraine to cover up such casualties that they did face, uh, which means that they thought that was an issue even then. So let's get to, so far we've been talking, as I think is proper, the news of the day is the fighting. But beforehand, there was this game of offering pretexts for why Russia was going into Ukraine. Why is it important for Putin to light upon a specific fiction, and they're all fictions, to justify his actions? Who is he trying to justify it to? 
to say that, well, these two sections of the Donbass are actually have are actually Russian states and therefore we're not invading another country. Why go through that, you know, um, kind of kind of exercise in fiction? I think that the fiction works in certain audiences. It works to a certain extent at home in Russia, where that message is not nearly as convincing as the story in 2014, but it convinces some people. It'll work to a certain extent internationally, though I think it's a lot less compelling than Russia's previous narratives uh, have been. And I I think also it's intended in part to explain to Russia's own elite what's going on. Um, it, 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 It is a hard story to spin. Russia's going into Ukraine to save the Ukrainians from the Nazis. Um, that doesn't really make that much sense. And so the more Russia can spin a story that's marginally more coherent, the easier it is for Russia's elites to know what exactly they're supposed to be doing. Um, you know, it's 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 one thing to um, just declare a war of aggression against Ukraine, but uh, Putin has evidently decided that that's, that's too risky of a strategy. You've got to at least have some story, however divorced from reality. Yeah, I don't think anyone's declared a war of aggression on the international stage in 50 years. It's just gone out of favor. So a noted United States analyst of the region, uh, Donald J. Trump, was on the Clay and Travis show, and he offered this assessment of Putin's pretext. I went in yesterday and there was a television screen, and I said, this is genius. Putin declares a big portion of the Ukraine, of Ukraine. Putin declares it as independent. Oh, that's wonderful. So Putin is now saying it's independent, a large section of Ukraine. I said, how smart is that? So I ask you, Christopher Miller, how smart is that? My sense is that this there's a, a reasonable chance this looks smart from Russia's perspective in a couple months' time, and that Putin might get what he wants in Ukraine. I hope he doesn't, uh, but I think we should be aware that he might. He's going to win the war on the battlefield, and he might succeed in, um, in setting up a public government in Ukraine. We'll see. In a couple of years' time, I think this looks a lot less smart because he's even further torn up his relationship with the U.S. uh, and with Europe. Now, he's betting that he can get Ukraine and still repair his relationship enough to get what he wants, be able to sell us oil and gas, things like that. Um, I'm skeptical of that logic, um, but we'll see. Uh, A lot depends on how easy it is to pacify Ukraine and get a puppet in place. And as far as the specific tactic or stratagem of declaring parts of eastern Ukraine part of Russia and therefore he's not invading, he's just going into the, the state, is that smart? Is there a cleverness to that that, frankly, I'm missing a little bit? If you'd asked me one week ago, I would have said Putin's a pretty rational calculator. And now my sense after this past week of deranged speeches is that I'm much less confident. But my sense would be that it's not crazy for Russia to think that it would rather have a smaller Ukraine uh, losing its Donbass territories in case what Russia's trying now doesn't work in Ukraine and Russia does lose control of the rest of Ukraine. It still ends up with the Donbass under its control. Yeah, it does give him the option. And I suppose going into the Donbass, claiming it is part of Russia, now that the Ukrainians are fighting back, of course, because it's not part of Russia, he could say, okay, they declared war on us. That's right. And that, that's been the narrative from uh, the Kremlin thus far. It's the Ukrainians who started the war, the Ukrainians were the aggressors. So what happens if this more or less works out for Putin? What happens if Ukraine becomes either a part of Russia or a Russian vassal state? Well, it's bad news for Ukrainians who have to put up with whatever stooge Russia puts in place. It, it's bad news for the rest of us, too, for Europe, which will face a, 
uh, militarized Belarus and Russia and Ukraine along uh, its border, both controlled uh, ever more explicitly by Russia. It's bad news for the West in general because our policy in Ukraine has been humiliated. For the past decade, we've been trying to support the establishment of a functional Western-oriented democracy in Ukraine. Uh, and this morning, that's not looking very effective. I know you're not a Taiwan expert, but is it bad news for Taiwan? China looks at what Russia is doing and says, ah, the U.S. won't intervene that much. We're going into Taiwan. Yeah, you know, there are there are plenty of differences between Ukraine and Taiwan, but I think the core point is right, which is that U.S. commitments look a lot less impressive this morning than they might have a couple of days ago. I know you are a critic and you just criticized the U.S. response, but what should they have done? Are you advocating sending in troops? No, I, I wouldn't have advocated that in this situation. I, I think we found ourselves at the start of this year when Russia uh, began its buildup already in a position of such weakness, our hands were already tied. The mistakes we've made are over the past decade. We've let the military balance in Europe swing decisively in Russia's favor, in part because we were focused on other regions, in part because we simply let our military edge wane. We didn't want to pay for the military uh, uh, equipment, the, the size of the military, the new technologies that we need. Uh, and we've watched Russia as it's built up its own military and done nothing in response. And so we really shouldn't be surprised, I don't think, at the results of this. The results are Russia's won a series of victories, Georgia 2008, Syria 2015, now in Ukraine, um, because its military has gotten stronger and our ability to counteract that hasn't. So I, I would actually, rather than looking at um, what Biden did or even uh, the Trump administration, I think you, know, you can criticize them for being insufficiently supportive of Ukraine, but this has really deep roots in a shifting military balance of power that multiple administrations and multiple Congresses uh, are ultimately responsible for. Do any of the forward-looking chits that the West has have to play, will they be intimidating? Uh, sanctions, I suppose, turning off the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Will any of these m make Putin pull back his forces? I don't think sanctions are going to make Putin pull back, but I think they should be imposed anyway. What we got to recognize now is we are in a decade or longer competition with Russia, and we've got to use every lever we can to gain advantage over the Russians. And the reality is that although we've neglected the military sphere, we're still vastly more powerful in the economic sphere. And we're more able to adapt to tough sanctions that cut off trade and financial ties with the Russians than the Russians are. So if Russia ends up substantially poor due to sanctions and otherwise would be, it'll have less resource to put in its military, less technology uh, to apply to its military industrial complex. It'll be less able to, uh, to advance its military and to wage wars in the future. Knowing him as you do, is there something that we in the West get wrong about Putin that's explaining this conflict? I think we've talked ourselves into believing that Russia is a declining power. And maybe over some sort of long time horizon, that's true. Uh, but since 2008, we've told ourselves that all of his victories are temporary, um, that the ways he wields power are out of the 19th century, uh, and that the arc of history is bending in our direction inevitably. Uh, and Maybe that's true over the next century, but it's been wrong over the past 20 years. Chris Miller is an assistant professor of international history at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts. They do a great job there at the Fletcher School, as you could hear from this conversation. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you.
And now the spiel. Let me give you a quiz. I'll follow it with an observation. Here's the question. Before today's incursion by Russia into Ukraine, before the war in Ukraine, guess how many active wars there were in the world? It's two. One is in the Tigray region of Ethiopia. Tigray, not going to talk about that one. Some consider it a conflict within a state's borders. It meets most definitions of international shooting war. The other, well, if you're paying the news out of the United Nations recently, and you weren't, because really, who was? Here's Hans Grundberg, who is the special envoy for this second conflict. I'm also exploring ways to more immediately de-escalate the violence. Where is he talking about? It can't be Ukraine, because he said this nine days ago. Grunberg continued. Yemenis cannot wait until the parties are tired of fighting. And as we know uh, by now, there will always be one more battle, one more win to pursue, uh, one more territory to control. The war in Yemen has been going on for seven years. The death toll has been, well, the UN just put a number on it, 377,000 through fighting, through malnutrition, through all the ravages of war. That includes civilians and combatants. There are differences from the war in Yemen to the Ukrainian conflict, namely that the Houthi rebels are controlling Yemen illegitimately, and the Ukrainian government is legitimate. The Houthis got control via coup. But after seven years, you know what you call an illegitimate government? You call it a government. Or you could, if you would just call it a day, in this wasteful and bloody war. And you know what you would call the invading army in such a war? Well, in Russia's case, America rightly calls Russia the aggressors. But in the case of Yemen, the U.S. calls the equivalent nation, well, we call them allies, because Saudi Arabia is backed and armed by the United States, and 377,000 are dead. The attacks, by the way, are escalating. The U.N. says January of this year is one of the worst months so far, and war can continue for another seven years. No one is winning. The U.S. Senate recently had a vote to end arms sales to the Saudis. I bet you didn't know that. It got almost no coverage. I will give credit. The Intercept covered it. Kudos to them. I frequently find fault with The Intercept, but not in this case. The headline of this resolution and this vote was a bipartisan resolution. It was co-sponsored by Rand Paul, Mike Lee, and Bernie Sanders, sought to block $650 million in weapon sales to the Saudis. The final vote was 30 senators in favor of blocking the sale, 67 wanted to keep selling and fighting. It should be noted that Lee and Paul, the co-sponsors, along with Sanders, those were the only two Republican senators to support it. They were joined by 27 Democrats or independents and all of Democratic leadership, Schumer, Durbin, Murray. They signed on. Plenty of Dems, including White House Carper Coons, Murphy, Blumenthal, voted to keep the war there funded. The Biden White House was with the 67. None of this makes what's going on in Ukraine any less appalling. In that conflict, the United States rightly stands on the side of human rights and humanitarianism, but we can't do much to deter the invading army. In Yemen, the United States can do a lot to deter the invading army, for one, not arm them, but it chooses not to. I'm not alleging cowardice, hypocrisy, or even making a moral judgment. I'm just saying that if you're looking at scenes of war and it's making you ill that nothing can be done, well, think about the war you're not seeing images of and know that as an American citizen, there is something you can do or possibly we all could do if we were paying attention.
And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the GIST's assistant producer. Joel Patterson, the GIST's senior producer. Michelle Pesca runs the Ministry of Culture and Information Policy for Peachfish Productions. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, check out advertisecast.com slash the GIST. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>